Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care, the podcast where together we explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can restore a healthier connection with our environment. I'm your host, Stéphane. I grew up in the French part of Switzerland and now live in London where I work in the environmental space, helping people and organizations connect the dots for biodiversity. Over the past few years, I've come to realize and understand that the reason why we care and feel such deep hurt when we see a forest being cut down or a whale being killed is because nature is where we come from. It's our home and it's who we are and it is so central to our balance and well-being. And yet we've become so disconnected from it. Most of us in the Western world living in concrete buildings, walking on concrete roads, living our lives away from the natural world. But I really do think that we need that connection with nature now more than ever. So this podcast is all about finding ways to restore that connection while protecting and regenerating the ecosystems around us. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Tom Mestel, a nature filmmaker and the author of How to Speak Well. We recorded this a few weeks ago, but since then I actually had a chance to travel to the climate conference COP28 and to see Tom and his friend Rahakan perform a whale song bath on the beach, which was absolutely magical. He was in Dubai to help give whales a voice with the Whale and Dolphin Conservation, an organization he is an ambassador for. And Tom is really great at telling the story of why whales matter and how crucial it is not only for us to try to protect them, but also to allocate more resources and focus towards the technologies that could allow us to understand them and maybe even one day communicate with them. So we spoke about the anthropocentric approach we've taken to the fine language and how both museums and zoos, which are the places most of us can easily go to to observe other species, are failing to capture behavior and communication. We also discussed the philosophical idea of alignment within AI, which is in other words, how do we teach these new forms of computer intelligence to have value systems and a moral compass so that they can operate within a framework that values human life. But then how can that be applied to the rest of the living world and where do other species fit in? When I was a kid, I used to listen to whale songs to fall asleep. So recording this episode on whales and dolphins with Tom felt extra special and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as well. And before we go into the conversation, Tom very kindly shared a recording of humpback whales singing. So um, I'm very happy to be able to share some of that with you. I hope you're feeling comfortable and relaxed. Take a moment to feel grounded and clench your jaw. Move your shoulders away from your ears. Take a deep breath in and long breath out. And let's dive in. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for being here today. The first thing I would like to ask you is what's your story? Um... That's the uh, impossible thing to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my story is. Uh, it's still it's still kind of forming, I guess. But um, I think probably the thing I'll be talking with you today is uh, a story about whales and about uh, animal and human lives colliding with each other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And um, I mean, I think I will go into a bit more detail a bit later about your book, but you wrote a book um, last year, I think, called How to Speak Whale, um, A Voyage into the Future of Animal Communication. And so I discovered about the book um, and your story um, at an event at the British Library last year, I think, or earlier this year. So I would love if you could, if you don't mind, if you could share that story that happened to you that kind of launched you into that journey of wanting to find out more about um, whales and animal communication, because I think it's quite an interesting one. <laughs> it's uh, it's certainly unusual. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'd always liked whales since when I was a child. And when I was a teenager, I used to volunteer on whale watching boats, making sure t- tourists didn't get too close to whales. And um, when I went on family holidays, I, I looked back recently with my wife and she pointed out that instead of pictures of my family there were just lots of pictures of whales and postcards of whales and <laughs> when I was a child when I went to the country Wales I live in England uh, next door to Wales uh, I was very disappointed that there were no whales in Wales um, but that's not true <laughs> I actually, love that. I've, I've since been back and spent a lot of time in the sea off Wales and there's loads of whales and dolphins there but I didn't see them <laughs> um and uh so I, I'm, a, I'm a wildlife filmmaker I make nature documentaries and I was on holiday in California um, seven years ago, and um, I went whale watching on a kayaking tour with my friend Charlotte and some guides. And there were many humpback whales there feeding on a big, uh, like a big school of fish. And humpback whales are one of the bigger whales. Um, they're about 30 or 40 tons. Um, and they're about and maybe even a hundred whales had been seen on that stretch of coast over just a week or so. So a big group mm-hmm. of whales. Um, wow. and we were super careful to stay away. Um, you were bang our hands on our kayaks so they could hear us and keeping really well back from them because we were didn't want to disturb them, but also they're big, scary animals. And um, we'd finished and we were kayaking back towards the shore when um, a whale breached, which is when it, it throws its body out of the water and um but it breached and it uh, directly ahead of us and it came down and landed on top of us and dragged us under the water and smashed the boat the kayak and uh we uh survived we were very very lucky especially my friend charlotte who was at the front where the whale's um arm its pectoral fin hit and mm. about a centimeter from her feet or two centimeters um and I've learned since that when a whale breaches, it's with about the force of about 30 hand grenades. And we felt that in the water and it was astonishing. And I I, remember, I can still see it very vividly looking up and seeing this huge animal um, above us, like blocking out the sun. And Charlotte said it was like a building grew out of the water. And I thought that was a, a really good description because when you see them in the sea you just see a bit of them and they seem like they're floating but when they're above you coming down on you you realize that they're bone and muscle and blood and enormous um so we were very lucky and we, we survived um and we went back to shore and then a little bit later a video popped up on youtube and, and someone had filmed it and then it, it went viral um and all over the world and uh then because of that uh and my background i'd made films about whales i knew lots of whale scientists um people got in touch with me and and they said you know firstly that this whale saw you in midair you should be dead but it saw you and it turned away um and 
And then I went back to California and I made a documentary for the BBC and PBS uh, about, I used this as a chance to talk about whale conservation and to show the community of different people who are learning lots of things about whales, people who rescue them when they're caught in nets, people who film them underwater, people who try to protect them from being hit by boats, uh, scientists who study them by putting recording devices on them and seeing what they do underwater. Um, and at the very end of that filming, um, I met this guy and he ran an organization called Happy Whale, which uses uh, every single whale is has a unique tail. Well, it's, it's a unique whale, but they also have unique tails. And uh, the flukes, it's called, they all look different. And because humpback whales, when they go underwater, they stick their tails in the air, You people take photos of them. And he realized that every day, you know, thousands of whale tail photos were being taken. So he made a website where people could upload them. And that launched just a, a week or two before the whale jumped onto us. And he used artificial intelligence to match the tail of the whale that jumped onto us with the databases. And through that, he told us who it was, who its mother was, where it was born, how old it was. I, I just spent this, like the last few months or the spring of this year, watching um, this whale migrating up and down the coast of California and Mexico. Um, uh, and I, as a biologist, that was, I was trained as a biologist. I started as a conservation biologist, spending my time trying to find wild animals and find out what their lives were like. And then as a filmmaker, somebody who's trying to film wild animals and record their behaviors to show them to people, I was blown away. I just thought this, this whole story with me is quite crazy. You know, it was so lucky that that we survived and so strange that somebody filmed it, but also that this actually represents a much bigger story in our culture, which is that suddenly we can record everywhere the behaviors of other species and that artificial intelligence can find the information in those recordings that help us understand their lives. And I just spent five years researching this. I went to conferences. I traveled around the world, meeting scientists, studying different species, but especially cetaceans. That's the whales and dolphins and porpoises. And, uh, and it led me to this most exciting new development, which is people using AI to try to translate the communications of whales and dolphins so that maybe we could understand what they're saying or even speak to them. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I feel like, um, yeah, it, it's such an interesting one. And I would recommend um, <laughs> listeners get read the book because it's very, Sorry, it, it's that, a very uh, exciting one. And, excuse yeah. me, that was such a long introduction. I just don't know how to say it in a short way. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, but it's completely fine. And I love it. And I think it needs all the detail because, um, yeah, it's just kind of opens a lot of different um things that we could go into into more detail so and it, it's a really um fun one so um absolutely not. I mean fun in the sense that it's, <laughs> it is it's, fun it's, I think it's, it's fun I like well, it well it's yeah. fun because you survived if you you know it could have ended um pretty um tragically but because you survived uh, it's well, my mom <laughs> well my mom actually <laughs> said after she was she said um you know darling uh, I am very glad that you survived but it would have been a very appropriate way for you to die <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah oh wow <laughs> your mom is funny, <laughs> is funny yeah. um but yeah so um yeah I, I was about to say um listeners I would highly recommend reading the book because it goes into so much detail and it is a very interesting one but Tom maybe 
one thing I wanted to ask you is, could you share maybe a little bit more about the ethical implications, in your opinion, of using AI and new technologies to try to understand how other species and especially whales communicate? And, and also, because you, you go into more detail in the book, but you're we're also scientists are, are trying to understand what they're saying, right? So what, what mm. yeah, could, could you share more about that? And also, I guess, the yeah, the ethical implications of that and, and what we need to consider and be careful about. Absolutely. And I think this is, it's a very um, rapidly moving time and a lot of attention is being drawn to this now. But um, I think a one way into it is that a lot of the scientists who are doing this work are doing it for ethical reasons. They, um, in the 1970s, uh, we were driving whales and dolphins, so whales to extinction from whaling industrially. We were killing, you know, we killed three million of them and they were going to go extinct. And one of the most important things that happened was that um, a man called Roger Payne, his wife Katie, and a guy called Scott McVeigh, um, they got recordings of whales, and they realized and they discovered that they were singing, and the songs were beautiful, and they proved that they were song, they published it in Science, the journal, but they also released albums of it, and it became a huge cultural moment, and humans suddenly cared a lot more about whales, and really the song of whales and how emotional and powerful it was. It helped humans to empathize with these animals that they were industrially killing so much that the Save the Whales movement was successful. And uh, today, and not only that, but other environmental movements took courage from this. Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and other organizations kind of were born at this time of, of the, sales, the whale, Save the Whales movement. It was the, you know, one of the great environmental success stories. Um, and it came from new technology, the ability to record and listen and share and compare the voices of other animals and see how they were similar to ours. And that helped humans to empathize and care and change their behaviors. So a lot of the scientists who are doing this work now of trying to record the voices of whales and dolphins and understand what they are communicating and maybe to communicate with them, they're driven by this hope that because these animals' lives are in real trouble. Like in a few weeks, I will go to the COP28 climate meeting to advocate for whales. You know, we, climate migration in the sea has been going on in very extreme ways. We are seeing in the United Kingdom, whales and dolphins that have never been seen here historically, Come, coming from the Arctic, coming from the tropics. The seas are changing very rapidly. So there is an urgency and a fear among conservation biologists that unless we care more about these animals, we won't inconvenience ourselves enough to help save them from this extinction and climate crisis that we're living through. So that's the background for why many of these um, research programs are taking place. But however, conservation and biology is full of the law of unintended consequences. Um, and the sea, uh, you know, so, so often, you know, we have introduced species into new places, hoping to control other species like cane toads in Australia, and then they've exploded and destabilized whole ecosystems. Um, mm. we didn't realize we, that we could pollute um, the world with light. For us, it was exciting that we could make electric light, but it's a huge problem for migratory birds and sea turtles and many other animals, the light pollution. The seas are full of the unintended pollution of our Navy submarines, sonar, and the sounds of our oil rigs and other vessels. And there's a huge problem for whales and dolphins. 
plastic, we made all these plastic products that were really useful for us, but unfortunately they build up in the oceans. And again, this is a new form of pollution. So with every frontier of technology, um, they give opportunities, but we have chances of unintended pollution and disturbance to the lives of others. And so a big uh, concern now is we know that these animals have cultures. They're described as cultures by scientists. They have different ways of living that they teach each other vocally that are totally unique to each individual population or sometimes even family group. So what will the effect on these cultures be if we start playing them strange new sounds that sound like what they're saying or even sound exactly like the things that they say to each other? Could we be creating a new form of cultural pollution? And a particularly weird element to this is that um, you pre probably your listeners will be familiar with deep faking, which is um, using deep learning, which is a kind of uh, a branch of artificial intelligence to uh, you, if you give a sample of a voice or some pictures or videos to these uh, these machine tools, they can create new fake versions, say, of Barack Obama saying something he didn't say or of, you know, uh, me dancing down the street. Um, or if you play a little bit of the sound of my voice, you can recreate loads more of the sound of my voice so that it would sound to me or you like us, you know, our conversation continuing. We can already deepfake whales. We can get recordings of them and then these algorithms can make what probably would be to other whales sound plausibly like whales communicating, singing or, or doing, or uh, you know, um, doing their other communications. Mm -hmm. We don't know what they mean. So we can do weird mashup imitations of them before we know what it is we're imitating. So that's one of the, the things that's kind of asymmetrical about this develop this developing field is that some of our competencies have outstripped our understandings so that's making a lot of people say whoa hold up we need to listen for a long time before we start introducing anything from our side into the sea i go into this in much more detail in the book and how it works and various frameworks you could use for uh, trying to be very very careful but i mean the ethical considerations are, are wider you know Mm -hmm. knowledge is is power and the knowledge of how different species communicate comes with the power to manipulate um there are um animals have been used in war for centuries thousands of years what if we could control where bees lived with scent communications um what if we could manipulate other species by understanding their communications into achieving our different political ends. These are certainly going to be thinked about, uh, thought about, sorry, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> by our military and political, you know, people. So I think what's most important is that this stuff sounds like crazy Dr. Doolittle fantasy, understanding what other animals are saying and, com and communicating with them. But if we don't take it seriously, then we leave the space clear for bad actors. If we don't try and come up with frameworks for representing and protecting these cultures that we're just discovering, these fragile cultures, um, then, then they could be in real trouble. 
And I think we should draw on our experiences of bad communication between human cultures and first contacts or what's called first contact between different branches of human cultures uh, and learn from those mistakes that we've made. I really like what you're saying about how it's there's two sides to this coin almost. And it's about finding that balance between using tech to and, and new technologies and AI to help I guess, build that connection that we can have with these species as humans. And so therefore get more people to get behind uh, protecting them, but then also at the same time, being careful not to disturb them. And as you're saying, not to make the mistakes we've done in the past um, mm. by, yeah, by, by interfering with, with those fragile um, species and ecosystems. Mm. Big time. And I think there's a wider philosophical question that's taking place in AI in general, about mm -hmm. this philosophical idea called alignment. And alignment is about how do we teach new forms of computer intelligence to have value systems, um, at morals and ethics, rather than just solving problems, so that they solve their problems at, with a value framework that m values human life. And now there's a wider conversation going on about, well, if we've trained most AI, on human culture data sets, humans in general in our culture do not value the rest of life on earth very much. Where mm -hmm. in the training of new super intelligence, um, where does the rest of the living world fit in? How do we help these computer intelligences understand that there's an incredibly valuable, um, you know, infinite, unknown, um, unique, uh, living planet that we're just a tiny part of and that the, what it is being fed as representation of the world is just a small fraction of a small understanding of what we of one species sees at this point in time how do we teach synthetic intelligence to value the rest of the living world um, so that's that's a wider philosophical question and there are meetings happening between philosophers about this at the moment and it's a, a you know it's becoming part of this uh, you know, the, these conversations about how do we not make new intelligences that don't care about humans. Um, but the problem is most of the guys who've invented these AI tools don't themselves care about nature. They mm -hmm. care about intelligence. They care about, you know, making machines. They're not people who have uh, a high value system for the rest of the living world already in them. So it's, 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 it's quite hard to persuade them to make the machines care too. Um, but then one final thing is, my friend's mother's breast cancer was discovered by an AI mm -hmm. uh, machine uh, in concert with a person. An operator had their attention drawn to her breast cancer. This will, you know, hopefully make a huge difference to her treatment and, and survival. Um, and I think, you know, th these are just tools, tools that are being used by people. And what tool and what people and what powers and what oversight? Those are the questions, not just AI, good, bad, um, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're completely right that it's um, it's definitely a, a very broad question. And I, I've definitely heard a lot of these debates around how, how do we, what, what's the relationship between artificial intelligence and humans? And, and you know, what's the, yeah, I guess, what, what's the link? And, and how do we ensure that they're not destroying what it means to be human? But then I think you're making a really interesting point as well about um, what about other species? And that's something that maybe is less talked about. But I, and that's actually a really good link with um, something else I wanted to ask. Um, 
because I think there's a really there's a really interesting part of the book where you consider you consider what we mean by language. And you say that, um, I'm going to quote you, many human signals are unspectacular, as are our senses. And you give examples such as how our ears cannot hear the sonic rumbles of elephant voices or the calls of bats and moths, um, and how cows have twice the hearing range we do, and how our skin cannot emit or sense electric charges in the way other species, such as elephants or hummingbirds, do. And then you say, when they need to communicate, um, they can utilize sounds we cannot hear, colors we cannot see, scents we cannot smell, and forces we cannot feel. And I think that's really fascinating. And I remember reading this and being so excited by it. And also such a good reminder of how anthropocentric we tend to be and 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 a reminder as well that we actually shouldn't um, limit our definition of language to spoken sounds and words which is how we communicate as humans so I would love if you could um, maybe expand on that a little bit as well on about the the definition of language and where it's yes from. exactly yeah. and how I, I guess how what I find interesting is how um, we see language language in a certain way as humans but then when you try to get a different perspective you realize that it's so much more and that we're actually we're not very good at communicating in a lot of ways yeah. if we compare ourselves to other species I think that's really interesting totally I mean it's one of the hardest things to do is to talk about language because it's like it's like drawing drawing you know it's like an MC Escher kind of picture of a hand drawing itself to describe itself it's that the only mm -hmm. tools we have at our disposal are the ones that we've evolved to have uh -huh. I think, you know, and you know and so it's how do we know what else there is because we have evolved to listen and communicate in this very particular way to solve the challenges and the ways of living that humans have i mean one example of how you know challenging this area is is that like sign language was not even called an official language until recently you know mm -hmm. yet people could communicate things happening in the future their thoughts and beliefs and desires and identities and fictional things and things that ha couldn't happen using sign language you know so you know we e we even argue about which of our own languages are languages and the thing that really irritated me researching this book was how many linguists and philosophers came to sweeping conclusions about language and it was almost always that humans were the only animals with language. Um, firstly, by having, I looked into their research histories and none of them had ever spent time watching other wild animals. They'd maybe seen a few cats or dogs or animals in captivity. But what a bizarre thing to decide that humans are the only animals with what we call language without actually watching the other animals, just by watching people or thinking about it with a human brain. And I think that speaks to the sort of, as you put it, put it like very right, anthropocentrism, like our, our, our way of seeing ourselves. And I think it also is to do with our obsession with language being what makes us different because we really need something to make us different. So we've held on to that, you know, Rene Descartes and many other philosophers have you know, said that's what, that's what separates us from the other animals and gives us justification for treating them differently from us uh, as things. Um, and, uh, but uh, also that it, it is just really hard. It's, it's um, you know, if, if you cannot perceive how another animal is communicating, then you don't see it, then you don't think it's communicating. Like a really good example of this is, is fish. I think, I think the reason that you have people who say I'm a vegetarian, but I do eat fish, sometimes for ethical reasons, 
is because they've never listened to fish talking to each other. Um, I think one of the reasons it's, but now we have hydrophones, we can see that the fish can hum and chirp and sing and chorus. And I think that changes how you think about fish. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, I think people probably find it harder to eat parrots than chickens because parrots are closer to talking in our way of seeing them than chickens. So it has like a heavy um, moral and philosophical element, this, you know, what other species you know, could be using language. And also the definition of language is always being debated and changed. And the linguists get so angry at each other about this and they have very strong opinions um, and they all have complicated names and whole belief systems tied up in them about what language is and where it comes from and who's got it and who hasn't. But so little of it is evidenced. As a biologist, I find, found it like very frustrating because I kept wanting to understand why these guys had these strong opinions, but often it just seemed to be because they'd thought them up rather than they'd observed something or could you know, provide evidence for it. Um, and, but basically it's, it's a big mess, but the exciting mm -hmm. thing is that, you know, for, for uh, I mean, another you know, sort of incidental thing is that you and I are thinking about communicating, probably like written text comes into it quite a bit, that people have only been literate in our countries for you know 100 years or so the majority of people so mm -hmm. that's such a novel thing in the history of our species um and as a biologist and a filmmaker um i've really been struck by how uh if you go into a natural if you go into a natural history museum what, what do you see um you're, you're asking me <laughs> yeah 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 uh, well dead animals right skeletons yeah. and and yeah, yeah. And, and why is that why why are our museums of life full of dead things i don't know that's a good question probably because that's um well yeah because that's how we're observing them I, I i kind of get the sense that maybe it goes back to what you were saying before about this idea that we kind of need that distinctive element we need to feel special and we need as humans to feel above all the other species and so therefore it's easier for us to place ourselves above them if if we're observing them when they're dead and so there's no interaction it's just looking at what but i, I don't know yeah, it's safer i like that yeah, i hadn't thought safer. that but i think that's a really cool idea <laughs> i don't to, know because yeah, yeah i don't know arrange them in their dead rows and organize them it's it's less intimidating yeah um, well, I, th I think that's a, actually a very good answer, and I had never considered that before. I, I, think, <laughs> I think one facet of it for me is that we have lacked the ability to capture behavior and communication. Mm. So the re I've, I think one is just structurally, like it's very hard to compare and show animals to each other. Either you've got living ones in zoos or dead ones in museums. Mm -hmm. um, but in neither in zoos nor in museums do you show what those animals do in the wild in their normal lives. You can't show the differences between individuals very well. It may be a bit in zoos. You can't show their communications. You can't show their behaviors. And that, you know, if you go back to cave paintings, what those paintings from thousands of years ago are full of is the artists are trying to show how the animals moved. They're not mm -hmm. like arrangements of different species to explain them. They're trying to show how they lived. You know, they're like big herds of animals or lions prowling. And you can see in the in the shading and the contouring of the shoulders what they did. 
Um, and that's been a big problem. We've only ever been able to tell each other what we've seen other animals doing until mm. the video camera, until the ability to record audio. You know, Jacques Cousteau invented the aqualung. We have had movie cameras. We put them in boxes on water. Then we had underwater microphones. This was all in the last hundred years. So mm -hmm. only recently have we been able to show each other and compare videos of what animals do and communicate. And that means that, and, and because we can share them with each other no matter where we live, suddenly people across the world can see animals doing things and communicating, like a whale jumping on top of me. Mm -hmm. And and you can measure them. And that's that's the really exciting thing now with, with, with this approaching language is that previously, how did you try and find a way into another animal's language? You could sit and observe, you could maybe record a bit, you find patterns yourself in the recordings by kind of playing it out as graphs and looking at them. You try to teach them some version of your own language or symbols, or you try to find the most simple thing in their language or communication system. But now you have AI tools that can take data sets that are huge, that no human could ever um, listen to or watch and draw our attention to hidden patterns and then say, are these patterns like the patterns that those AI tools find in human language? And I think that's exciting because it's removing the prejudice and the anthropocentrism from it. The limitations we have as people with our human senses and our human ideas of language because of what we can feel and notice and learn and talk about, we're kind of stepping outside that a bit with these, with these AI tools and these big data sets. Um, so maybe that gives hope for seeing what is really there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, amazing. I love that. And realistically, how close do you think we are from being able to speak back? Obviously, keeping in mind all the kind of ethical implications that you mentioned at the beginning. But do you think, I, well, yeah, is that in your view going to happen quite soon? And also, if so, um, what do you think, say, in the case of whales, for example, what do you think? they would say to us if they somehow realized that we're able to communicate with them and then what would you want to say to them uh, well, that's a lot of questions <laughs> yeah uh, sorry <laughs> um, well i think i think i think um before i answer your question i think it's worth pointing out that in many different human societies and indigenous traditions and cultures that aren't my culture of northern european industrialized life people have already been communicating with whales and dolphins. Um, there's a story uh, in the book uh, in Eden in Australia uh, where the indigenous people um, had teamed up with killer whales and they learned to hunt together and they taught the, set the settlers and whalers who moved there how to do it. And there's photos and accounts and I've watched video interviews of people of how the killer whales and the people teamed up um, to hunt other whales and then they would share the dead whale and the killer whales would be given the tongue and that was called the law of the tongue and it seems like there's a new paper that came out with a researcher at Oxford that this was a totally unique community of killer whales and that this was something that the people of that part of Australia who'd been there for perhaps over 10 20,000 years had learned and developed with those killer whales and in Brazil people fish with dolphins and the dolphins that they fish with and they collaborate and to collaborate, you have to have some form of communication or understanding. Um, they have their own dialect, these dolphins, that they sound different from other dolphins and that they um, in fact 
live longer as well. So mm-hmm. there are lots of ways that, and there are loads of other examples in places like Greenland and Canada of people who already communicate with other species. But what um, I would, I guess I'm much more interested in listening to mm-hmm. um, them than talking to them. Uh, if I was going to ask them a question, it would be show me what is most interesting and important to you. That's what I'd like to know. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know what oh, they think of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, Robert Burns, the poet, he said like, oh, you know, what power the gift it would give us to see ourselves as others see us. And I I would like to know how they see us because they are inquisitive, many of these whales and dolphins. They come over to us. I was in the sea just last week with seals that came over and played with us. And I've been on boats where, you know, humpback whales and many other species have come over to investigate and play and spend more time than you can explain, you know, around looking at us mirroring their bodies doing other things um and to your question of whether it's going to happen and how soon and what will be found well there's a project called SETI that's taking place off Dominica right now and this is the biggest ever animal behavior recording project in history mm-hmm. they are they need to get billions of sperm whale communications because to use these big data tools, the AI ones that are behind uh, Google Translate and pattern finding tools for human language, they need huge data sets. So it's going to be another few years before they can start to see what patterns are in there. Um, what will they find? Who knows? I think this is like the, the invention of the telescope or the microscope. You don't know what you're going to see until you start looking with the new tools and probably will be very surprised. Um, and that is for me that 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 mystery is more exciting than a prediction. Um, I think that, but they're already having successes. They seem to have understood the communication the sperm whales use to each other before they dive. The signal for dive. Um, there's a paper coming out soon where they've characterized. They've listened to them enough already to characterize all the different sounds that they make. So they've they've. Um, they they figured out the whale's phonetic alphabet, the base units of sounds that the whales use and combine in different ways. And it seems like the different combinations of those sounds mean different things to them, like with our language. Um, and the complexity in, of that seems to be indicating that there is some complexity of communication system. They found that the whales take turns to speak and listen and respond. So that's also encouraging in terms of, is this something where information is being put out and listened to? I go into this loads more in the book, but it'll be year, a few years, but it's happening. And I think the most exciting and most important thing is this research has never been done with this ambition before, but you know, we spend billions of pounds in Europe on CERN to look for subatomic particles and billions of pounds has gone into the James Webb telescope to look at distant galaxies, but none of them are going extinct, but whales and dolphins are and they could be the only other conscious sentient animals in the universe that we could ever speak to. And um, and so that makes me think we should be spending more money and more time seeing what's there with them than those other projects. Oh, that's a beautiful, uh, that's a beautiful note to end on. And it kind of um, brings me back, 
back to what you were saying at the beginning about how um, this idea of empathy and how you said in in the was it in the seventies that whale songs um, were released as uh, music and then it helped people feel more empathy and I think that's such a good mm. point and how also yeah some of these um, things you mentioned telescopes and everything there's always this kind of question of I guess we're trying to understand why we're here and whether we're alone here or not and I think you're making a really good point that there are other species here uh, with us and maybe we need to put a little bit more attention and and um, feel that connection with them even though they're very different in a lot of ways maybe we have more in common with them than we actually um, realize. Yeah I think for a long time our questions about other species are or have been are they as good at as us? You know, mm -hmm. we thought we tried to rank and have we've had hierarchical views. I think it's way more interesting to think, how do we relate? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. I love that. Thank you so much, Tom. I think we're going to end here because uh, we're almost yeah. out of time. But um, that was yes. super interesting. Thank you so much. And um, I will uh, leave a link to your book in the show notes for listeners because it's, it's a really good one. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so you. yeah, thank you so much for your time today and I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure our listeners will as well. No problem. Thank you listeners, I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. As always, if you did, please don't hesitate to share the episode with a friend or someone around you who you think might enjoy it as well. You can also follow me at Why We Care Podcast on Instagram and feel free to message on there if you have any feedback or thoughts. It's always super lovely to hear from you. Make sure you also follow Tom, get his book How to Speak Well. It's such an amazing read. And as always, thank you so much for caring and sending you lots of love. <laughs>